who don't know me, I'm Pastor Dave. I'm, ex, I'm former Pastor Dave Stevenson. I got thinking this week, in my 28 years here in the church, is this, uh, <laughs> that I've spent as long as the active pastor as I have as the retired pastor. So um, 14 years in each category. And I think this is the first time in all my years, either preaching here or anywhere else, that I preach in the shade of palm trees. That's rather unusual. Great job of uh, decorating. Okay. Oh, by the way, um, in Pastor Jim's absence on sabbatical, uh, Pastor um, Steve Morgan and I are giving Pastor Troy a little bit of a of a break of before and after vacation Bible school. So next Sunday, uh, Steve Morgan will be standing in the pulpit here. We look forward to that. I am uh, continuing in the series, uh, and uh, Pastor Morgan will be doing that too, uh, continuing in the series uh, that uh, uh, we're in in uh, 1 Thessalonians. So today we're, we're uh, pursuing that in the third chapter. On July 3rd of this year, three young adults, two men and one woman, died violently as they were swept over the 100-foot-high Shannon Falls in British Columbia. In response, one person said, the world has lost a great deal of light with their passing. They lived every single day to its fullest. They stood for positivity, courage, and living the best life that you can. And they shared and taught their values to millions of people worldwide. Sounds like a pretty positive tribute, right? Uh, but let's look a little further at their situation. They were part of a movement called High on Life, a group that specializes in engaging in extremely dangerous and often unlawful activities. These are recorded and distributed to a YouTube audience estimated to consist of 1.1 million people. These three who died had, because of their unlawful antics, been banned for five years from six U.S. national parks and monuments. Another high on life participant recently died in a six-story fall from a New York building. And last summer at a Minnesota location, another high on lifer, seeking to be an internet sensation, lost his life in the belief that a portion of an encyclopedia would stop the bullet of a 50 caliber pistol that was fired at his chest. When, obviously before the trigger was pulled, he was asked why, he said, because we want more viewers. Now I admit to a certain admiration for those who participate in such exciting activities as skydiving and hang gliding and bungee jumping, but to put life at risk is, in my opinion, just plain stupid, sinful, and the farthest thing from being high on life. The New Testament, thank you, the New Testament has some things to say about being to use the expression at hand, high on life. Jesus said he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. 
in our text today, the apostle says that he really lives if his converts stand firm in the Lord. Real life, abundant life, in New Testament terms, always has Christ as its center and has nothing to do with making a sensational appearance on YouTube. Do you want to be high on life? You should. All who have new life in Christ should want to live that life abundantly. Make sure the focus is not on how awesome you are, but on how truly awesome is the one who has, by his grace, come to be Lord of your life. And promote his awesomeness to be experienced by others. This leads us to the passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, which, um, in which we find this sermon's big idea. And if you're looking at the notes in the bulletin, you'll indicate there. And by the way, I've given you a few blanks. You have to, uh, you know, think a little bit to uh, fill them in. Uh, the big idea, Paul's earnest concern for fellow believers is an example for our life's focus if we desire to really live. Now, since Paul, as he begins this chapter, mentions Athens right away, I think it fitting just to, and I'm going to turn back to Acts 17 just for a moment, I'm not asking you to turn there, but just a little review to get our bearings as Paul begins uh, this third chapter. In Acts 16, many of you will remember that, um, that Paul and Silas were in jail in Philippi, and they were miraculously released, and then very shortly after they left, and their next stop was Thessalonica. Chapter 17 tells us that, and it says here that uh, in verse 4 of Acts 17, at Thessalonica, some of them were persuaded. And by the way, he, it says that uh, for three consecutive Sabbaths, uh, Paul held forth in the synagogue. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. Well, then, uh, shortly after, Paul and Timothy and Silas, or Silvanus, as he's referred to here, um, left and went about 30 miles to the next town down the road of Berea. They did the same thing. They met in the synagogue with the people in Berea, and it says now, um, many of them in Berea therefore believed, along with a number of the prominent Greek women and men. Same sort of response. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there likewise, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So the same kind of opposition was, was aroused there, and they left Berea. Paul goes to Athens, and, from, and as he goes to Athens, he sends Timothy back, which we'll see right here. I want us to just get that feel. I want you to understand that these believers in Thessalonica to whom Paul is writing are baby Christians. They are at best a few months old in the Lord. And so these are young believers that he's concerned about. And so he says, and, and let's read here, um, and I think we'll have it on the screen, um, 
And, and by the way, this is the New American Standard Bible. And uh, so if you're looking at it in the, um, in, the pew, in the Bibles there in the chairs, there's a little bit of difference, but not much. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, destined for the persecution. He says, you're experiencing persecution, and, and that's to be expected. We taught you that. Verse four, uh, verse 4. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason... When I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor should be in vain. Paul was fearful, fearful that the tempter, Satan, might have tempted them and that they would have somehow uh, abandoned their newfound faith. So he sends Timothy out of this. Notice he says, he talks about that in verse 1 and verse 5. He says, when we could endure it no longer. I just, I was so concerned for you believers there in Thessalonica that I finally, I had to send Timothy to find out and I was fearful that you had been tempted and had succumbed to Satan's temptation. So he sends Timothy to strengthen and encourage them and to remind them of their, he uses the word destiny, to suffer. It's expected. I mean, Jesus said it. They They've persecuted me. Do you expect they're not going to persecute you? So this persecution was to be expected. I want to pause just for a minute and take a little, just a little side trip. Never done that before, but uh, about Satan. You know, Pastor Troy pointed out to us when in verse 18 of the previous chapter, we wanted, Paul says, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. He hindered us. Satan was the one. And Paul expresses his concern about the tempter tempting him. And I want to confess to you um, that I, I think too little about Satan. I, I believe I think too little about his opposition to the gospel and his opposition to what God wants to do in people's lives. And I think that uh, and, uh, you know, it drives me back. It should drive us back to uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 6 says that we are in a spiritual warfare. And it talks about the armor that we should be wearing. And I think, and this calls for a whole different sermon. And I'm, not, I'm leaving this alone now. Pastor Troy, sermon on Satan one of these days. That would be a good idea, right? Uh, um, but uh, I'm, am I wearing the armor that uh, the word of God says needs to be worn in order that we might... Uh, stand against this spiritual enemy of ours, Satan himself. Okay, that's, uh, that's as far as we'll go with that little uh, digression. We have seen Paul's fear. Now, let's go on to the next uh, few verses that refer to Paul's comfort. He says, we were comforted about you through your faith. And Timothy, uh, well, he says... Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love 
and that you, are, you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm, if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul is comforted as he learns about their faith. Now, I want us to um, notice in uh, verse 6, he refers to faith and love and, well, hope. It, it makes me think, notice in verse 6, now the Trinity has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and of your longing to see us, your hope that we might be reunited. Reuni reunited. I think of what was said at the very outset of this letter in the third verse of the first chapter when Paul, in talking to them, he says, I am I'm constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. There's a triad there. There's a, and for you Bible students that want to do a little more snooping around in this book, look at those tri that triad. If you look at the last couple of verses of the first chapter, you'll see faith, love, and hope expressed there. And here he expresses it again. These are essential qualities in the life of the believer. I want to um, here just talk a little bit about faith, first of all. And I think faith is mentioned first because that's our first experience, our first part of our Christian experience. It's, it's saving faith. It's saving faith that brings us into relationship with Christ. And so um, it leads me to, to say something about this. I, I think that when we come together on a Sunday morning, that we tend to be guilty of two, they're unspoken, but two faulty assumptions. The first of those is this. We, sit, we tend to have the feeling that every person in this room has saving faith. We tend to think that every one of us, as we gather together on Sunday morning, is a true believer in Jesus Christ, has truly been born again, entered into life in Christ. And I think that is not necessarily true. I, I would wish it were and hope it is, but, but I'm not sure that it really is true. Saving faith is the entrance into the Christian life. These believers at Thessalonica had experienced saving faith. That was what brought them into the Christian family. You know, faith, did you know that faith speaks? The Bible tells us that faith has something to say to us, and it's in Romans, the 10th chapter. Uh, in Romans 10, cha chapter 10, it says, the righteousness based on faith speaks in a certain way. And then, and again, verse, uh, uh, verse 8, it says, the word of faith which we preach, it says this. Now, before we notice what it says, I want to I notice what faith's um, statement is based on. In the, in the uh, letter to the Romans, Paul has so clearly spelled out, first of all, that we're sinners. First three chapters, it shows us that every person is a sinner. 
All of sin comes short of the glory of God. He goes on then and he talks about the death of Jesus, which is a substitutionary death. He died in our place. He died to bear the penalty for our sins, for he had no sins of his own for which to die. And then his resurrection is focused on as the, as the thing that you know, provides the guarantee that uh, he can offer to us a resurrection life. And then faith speaks on the basis of those facts. And <clears throat> faith says this. <clears throat> he says, what does it say? What does this word of faith say? Uh, this word of faith which we are preaching says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And then it says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is what faith says to us. We need to believe. We need to respond to the, all that God has done on our behalf. The simplest illustration of this that I can think of is this. You're, uh, you're downtown Seattle, and uh, the office that you want to attend uh, to go to is on the 15th story of some building there. So you want to go there, so you decide you walk in the building, and there in the lobby, you walk up, and there's the elevators, and there you can push the button, and those doors open. And you say, boy, that's a good-looking elevator. It looks strong and clean and nice. Um, uh, in fact, there's a tag on the elevator that says, Otis Elevator Company. I mean, Otis, that's the name in elevators. I mean, totally reliable. And he even says, you know, uh, capacity so-and-so many pounds, and though you think I should be losing a little weight, you, you, uh, you know you're, it's got enough capacity to handle you. And you say, that is an absolutely perfect elevator, and while you're standing there saying this, the doors close. And you're not on it. Why? Because you did not step across the threshold and put yourself into that. I believe there are many people who look at Jesus and they say, and they've looked at themselves and they say, yes, I'm a sinner, I recognize my sin, and I recognize there's a right, a God who has made a provision and Jesus is the one and he is the perfect savior. He died and he rose again and he did all that for me. And the elevator door is closed. Why? Because we have not in repentance and faith walked across the threshold, so to speak, to receive him, to entrust ourselves to him. And I, I fear there may be some in this room that would say that very thing, but you've never in repentance and faith come to him. You know, that's, that's so all important. And there's no time like the present. And by the way, the Otis Elevator people are so interested in using your elevator that they've made an arrangement that as those doors are closing and are almost closed, if you stick your hand in there, those doors will open up again in order to allow you to, to get on their elevator. They want the business, right? God has done everything possible to make it possible for you to become a child of God. But there's that exercise of faith. Whoever will call upon in the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, let me take it, uh, just one more comment about this uh, uh, verse number, um, whoops, I'm in the wrong chapter here. Couldn't find the right verse. <clears throat> the statement in verse 8, where Paul says, for now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Now, in this translation of the Bible, that really is italicized. Now, that is not therefore, when you see the italicized words in your Bible, they're not there for emphasis. 
they're there because these translators have supplied an extra word in order to give full meaning to what's there. And the translators of this translation, and I checked it out because I didn't want just to preach from one translation that makes that... Uh, uh, There are nine other reputable New Testament translations that I looked at where the word really is used. Well, six of them use the word really and three others use other kind of adjectives to, to give emphasis to this word life. Because Paul is not saying, now we live, if you stand in the Lord, meaning, meaning um, I breathe. And if, I, if you would not stand firm in the, in the Lord, I would not breathe anymore. He, he doesn't just mean life in that way. He's talking about an intensity of life. He is uh, using the language like in Philippians 1 where it says, for me to live is Christ. Not just to draw a breath and have a pulse, but to really have... Uh, abundance in my living. So, uh, Paul says, for to me to really live is the progress, to see the progress of these baby Christians and uh, see them moving forward in the Lord. So, Paul is comforted in this way. He has an expectation, expectations, I might say, because Having given thanks, verse 9 and 10, having given thanks for the fact that uh, his fears were alleviated and they were not succumbing to the temptations of uh, Satan, his comfort had been uh, experienced in those, uh, in the new, good news that came back from Thessalonica. Now he speaks of his expectations, and, and they are they're sort of threefold. Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. There's the expectation of a reunion, that they will be together again. There's the expectation in verse 12, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you, that there will be an increase and abounding in the love that they have for one another. And finally, verse 13, so that the expectation that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And we could do a, another little digression here and talk about this, the, the return of Jesus Christ. And again, if you want to do a little more studying in First Thessalonians, notice the emphasis on the return of Christ and uh, the repeated reference to that that we have here in this little letter. It was a very real expectation on the part of Paul. But uh, in connection with his, with uh, verse 12, his concern that they might increase and abound in their experience of love for one another, it brings me to want to make a comment about <clears throat> that second faulty expectation. See, you know, I said the the first thing that we kind of assume, it's an unspoken assumption, is that we're all saved. The second is <clears throat> that all of us who gather here together on Sunday morning, our spiritual life is just at a wonderful level. We're all doing just fine spiritually. And I'm not sure that that's true. In fact, I'm quite sure it's not true because I look at my own heart. No, all is not well. You know, I had an experience, it's about 30 years ago, I was the pastor of a church in a small town, Polk City, Iowa, and uh, the church was here and the parsonage was right next door, and I was home one day, it was a Tuesday, Wednesday, middle of the week, and, 
and I, um, I was in jeans and a t-shirt, and uh, there was a knock at the door. I went to the door, opened the door, there's Doug, he's a member of the church, and I saw Doug every Sunday morning, but those were suit and tie days, you know, uh, Sunday morning was always a suit and tie, and uh, never did he see me in any other way, and uh, I don't know why, I don't remember why he came to see me, but, but when I opened the door, his chin dropped and he said, I didn't know you wore jeans. And I mean, you know, what do you think, I lived in some kind of a bubble or something. <clears throat> but it got me to thinking, if we were to meet one another out in the middle of the week someplace, in the workplace or where, wherever we are in midweek, would we have to say, or we, we'd say, well, I didn't know that you fill in the blank. I, I didn't know you used that coarse kind of language. About you, or I didn't know that you were struggling with this health problem. I didn't know that. I didn't find that out on Sunday morning when we were so, you know, all polished up. I mean, all of us had taken a shower within the last few hours, haven't we? And we put on some clean clothes and so on, and we look pretty good, and we smile, and we shake hands, and hug, and oh, everything's so good. But I didn't know you faced this health problem, or. I didn't know if we met each other during the week in your home environment. I didn't know you lived with such conflict in your home. Uh, I don't say this because I know stuff about you, but I can imagine that uh, in some homes that are represented in this place, there may have been some conflict between husband and wife. Uh, maybe it's pretty serious. Maybe the word divorce has come into your conversation. Or maybe between parents and children, there's, a, there's a, some real difficult stuff going on. Could that be? And I might say, well, I didn't know that. I, you know, I didn't know that you had, that you faced this addiction, and it might be to a substance, or it might be to stuff on the internet. I, I didn't know that you were addicted to that. Or I, I didn't know that that you are such a helpful person in your neighborhood and you are such, so good among your neighbors or the people that you had to do with and you're involved in this organization and that and for the betterment of society. I didn't know that. There are things we don't know about each other. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. And as we find that out about each other, we are a family, we are not an organization, we are an organism. And we should have a concern for each other. And as we find out that I didn't know about, it's not for condemnation. It's for, it's for aid and it's for encouragement and it's for the betterment of the body. How about that? Do we need some of that? See, this is what Paul is talking about. He says, I want you to increase and abound in love for one another. And that's a need we have. It all comes back to the big idea. Paul's earnest concern for fellow believers is an example for our life's focus if we desire to really live. Now we live in a world that often defines really living in very self-centered ways. Really living means owning a lot of stuff. The nicest house on the block, 
the latest electronic gadgetry a really impressive job? You get the idea? It goes to clothing, wild parties, popularity, bank accounts, leisure activities, home furnishings. Maybe it's going to Hobby Lobby and buying slogan-bearing plaques for every room in your house so, so people can know how God-centered you are. I may get in trouble for that one, I'm not sure. But, uh, <clears throat> Maybe it means to have a lot of likes on Facebook or getting a lots of YouTube viewers like the High on Life crowd. For many, those are the definitions of really living. Our passage today says really living is not self-centered. Paul says for him, really living is having a hand in helping other believers to stand firm in the Lord. Let's be honest. How does that line up with your ideas and my ideas of really living? How deep are my concerns and your concerns for the growth and stability of the other people in this room? How willing are we to go beyond after church conversations that's more than a sure's a hot one today? Uh, so what do we do? To promote an improved brand of true Christianity in this fellowship of believers. It seems to me it needs to start with a mindset that says, I want to be a contributor each week to the spiritual health of this body. That might lead you to engage in a spontaneous 30-second prayer with someone in need here before we're done today. It, um, it may be, you know, the elders of this church make themselves available at the close of each service to pray with you over your needs or to rejoice with you over your victories. And frankly, we're a bit disappointed at the limited response to that availability. We have a network of sermon-based small groups in which we can develop transparency and accountability for mutual benefit. I think that every sincere believer among us should be a part of such a group. Or how about using the church directory as a prayer guide and praying regularly through the church directory for the fellow members of this organism? Really living involves purposefully pursuing maturity in Christ for ourselves and then making ourselves available to enhance in any way possible the spiritual well-being of others in anticipation of that day when we will all be standing together, as this passage says, in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. May God help us to, to really live. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have not uh, left us without a witness as to what it means to really live. And I pray that you will work in our hearts and lives to bring about a deepened relationship with you and with each other, even as is reflected in this chapter in your holy book. 
take uh, words that have been said today, use them to draw people to yourself in saving faith, use them to draw us into a deeper relationship with you as we experience deeper relationships with other members of this body, anticipating the day to come when Jesus will return and take us all home. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.